0: The talk is about the courage to swim upstream. Are we interested in quick results? Or are we interested in quick fixes? The Buddha, right after his enlightenment, uh, was very reluctant to teach because he felt that uh, what he had understood as the way to liberation Uh, was very difficult uh, to achieve. Uh, So this reluctance um, was balanced with his looking, um, with his omniscience to all quarters of the earth and realizing that there were few beings in this world who had, uh, the word that's used is a few dust motes, like this is veil, Uh, covering uh, their eyes. A few motes, meaning that they had this uh, willingness to go through what we had to face, to be free, to face the truth of things. Uh, So he saw that there were some beings capable of this potential for freedom, for happiness and peace. This (coughs) willingness to face the truth is like uh, swimming upstream, and it takes great courage. Uh, The Buddha taught that most of humanity is uh, going downstream. (coughs) So I'd like to read what the Buddha said uh, just before he died, his final sermon. It is not appropriate to grieve in an hour of joy, You all weep, but is there any cause for grief? We should look upon a sage as a person escaped from a burning mansion. It does not matter whether I am here or not. Salvation does not depend upon me, but upon practicing the Dharma. Just as a cure depends not upon seeing the doctor, but upon taking his medicine. My time has come, my work is done. Everything eventually comes to an end even if it should last for an aeon. I have done what I could for myself and others, and to remain longer would be without purpose. I have trained all whom I could train. My teachings shall last for many generations, so do not be disturbed. Recognize that all that lives is subject to the laws of impermanence, and strive for eternal wisdom. When the light of knowledge dispels ignorance, when the world is seen as without substance, the end of life is seen as peace and as a cure to a disease. Everything that exists is bound to perish. Be therefore mindful of your salvation. The time of my passing has come. Being mindful of our desire to be liberated, mindful of our salvation, is that sense of swimming upstream. Uh, So a retreat then is not a matter of just developing tranquility. And it's not a matter of just resting the mind or uh, getting a sense of reassurance, although that's part of the retreat. And the tranquility, rest, and reassurance give us the strength to face uh, the deeper truths of life that set us free. Uh, So some of the retreat is gathering the strength and energy or courage to face life as it is. So the insight Uh, into the three characteristics of existence, into impermanence or anicca, into dukkha, unreliability of experience, and into anatta, uh, that there's no solid separate self, um, come from bringing a continuous mindfulness to our experience. Uh, And this means our non-conceptual experience, our direct experience. And the experience of insight into impermanence, understanding what the Buddha was just saying, that all conditioned things that uh, appear in this world will pass away, uh, will, will help us face the second characteristic of existence, or dukkha. Because of impermanence, we never know what's going to happen. There's this unpredictability uh, from moment to moment. And this is described as unreliability of experience. Uh, Sometimes I describe it as an intense vulnerability that we all share by taking birth here on the planet. Each moment is actually so fleeting. It's so wildly ungraspable. that sometimes it takes great courage to face dukkha. So sometimes we see through the lens of Anicca, I call that Anicca land. Sometimes we see through the lens of dukkha, I call that dukkha land. And sometimes we see through the lens of Anatta, Anatta land. Sometimes if we're uh, within that lens of dukkha land, we can feel a kind of unbearability uh, to existence itself. This is that never know whats going to happen in space. And it can feel very oppressive. The Buddha taught that one of the places that we can really set ourselves free is in relationship to this um, unreliability or oppressiveness. Uh, so he taught that With each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. Uh, So that with a sight, in one moment, consciousness takes the object of what is seen, and it will be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The next moment might be a body sensation, a pleasant tingling in the elbow. The next moment might be an aversive thought. The next moment might be a moment of metta. The next moment might be the breath. It's like, there's. if you look very closely, uh, that's how quickly things are changing. So moment to moment, there's a birth and death of consciousness. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. And from the perspective of Dukkha Land, this can be experienced as a kind of consistent bombardment or oppression not only is it a kind of bombardment, but because we're not really aware that this is happening, uh, uh, if there's no mindfulness, there'll be a reaction to the bombardment. And that reactiveness is much more oppressive, actually. It's much more of a bombardment. Uh, The Buddha taught that not seeing dukkha is dukkha. You know, not seeing dukkha is madness. And and he taught that this place of seeing that relationship between unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, that stream of change at the sense doors, if we can be mindful of that, we can be liberated. What is freedom, or liberation, in that stream of change? Well, the Buddha taught that mindfulness will allow us uh, to be free from the reaction to the bombardment, the reaction to the unreliability. Uh, And one way that the context for uh, understanding mindfulness, uh, I describe as RAIN, (laughs) R-A-I-N. So the first part of this uh, context of mindfulness is recognition, just seeing clearly whatever is happening, without the proliferation, without embellishment. uh, So if there's a moment of hearing, it's not I am hearing. It's not I'm hearing a car. But there's just that recognition hearing is happening, or tasting, or smelling, or touching. That's what we mean by keeping it simple. It's not, I am thinking, or I have an agonizing, sharp pain in the knee. It's touching, hearing. You know, there's a purity in that. You can see how just that recognition uh, shifts us from being lost to being present. Acceptance is really shifting to that intention to understand, rather than to judge. It's shifting out of the resistance, which can be so painful, which is mostly what is painful, uh, to just allowing the experience to be what it is. Uh, Whenever we're caught in the reaction of wanting the wanting mind, I want this, I want that, or I don't want this, I don't want that. uh, There's that suffering. That's the nuts and bolts of suffering. Uh, So that shift when we go from the recognition to acceptance, um, we can feel (laughs) much freer when the recognition and acceptance is happening. There might still be a sense of an identification with that recognition or acceptance. Uh, often the next two, uh, interest and non identification, uh, kind of help bring a balance to these four aspects of mindfulness. Uh, so s- sometimes when you'll get a sense of um, maybe even allowing the experience of resistance, for example, uh, we still might not feel like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, resistance. I was really looking forward to this, this sitting. You know, do you have that kind of relationship to knee pain? You know, oh, this is really what I came to this retreat for. And you know, if you don't have that kind of relationship to what's happening, uh, it might not be that exaggerated. But interest is literally the ability uh, to have that kind of investigation. Oh, fear. Wow, I wonder what it's like to be mindful of that. You know that you can see the quality of the difference in that relationship to that, rather than oh no, this is going to really ruin my city. You know, I'll never get liberated if I don't get rid of that fear. I'll never be liberated if I don't get rid of this boredom. You know, so the interest shifts it from being. Um, an unworthy experience uh, for our liberation to just what we needed. This is what we came to the retreat for, to get liberated. Non-identification, you know, this recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification, has that sense that we're relating to experience just like we would a cloud passing through the vast sky. There's no sense of it referring back to an I or me. Or if we're noticing something irritating about somebody else, <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see that mind state as just maybe there's an aversive energy around us, instead of us thinking, you know, that's that person's anger. It'll be, oh, just the aversion cloud appearing and disappearing in a, wild, a wide field of attention. So whether it's internal or external, the experience is related to as not personal. Not yours, not mine. (laughs) The Buddha taught that happiness and peace isn't based on getting a certain experience, and getting attached to it. Uh, so what what we're learning to do is to be able to see whatever experience is happening clearly. Uh, so we start to see through accepting anicca, or impermanence, and dukkha, unreliability, that we really can't control very much what's happening. For example, low energy, or high energy, uh, They're just like the weather. Uh, They're not personal. There's the ups and downs in energy. Uh, When we take them personally, we really suffer. When we just see that energy uh, comes and goes, will appear and disappear, that the the resistance to the low energy causes a lot of (laughs) um, tiredness. So the more we struggle and fight with low energy, the tireder we'll get the more we allow it, the more energy we'll have. So say boredom or dullness arises, if we have a sense that boredom is going to interfere with our liberation, uh, it will cause a lot of suffering for us. Uh, But if you look closely, it's the resistance to the boredom that's the problem. And it's very painful. But if we apply, for example, the recognition, Oh, boredom. Uh, Just that ability to shift out of getting lost and having to do something with it because it's not a means for a liberation. Uh, There's a huge shift. There's the beginning of from being lost in the content of a reaction to an experience to just, oh, boredom, and then allowing it. Just like we would allow the sound of a bird or the smell of um, a banana. And maybe we could even get enough um, mindfulness to be interested in boredom. I think that this is such an achievement. (laughs) You know, just to to be in this part of the retreat where we are, and that there's a possibility to know that that the interest in boredom can happen. Try checking it out. You know, Notice the difference between getting lost in Mm -hmm. a feeling that we have to do something with it and get rid of it to, oh, what's the body feel like? What's the mind feel like? Uh, And then seeing if we can just see that we don't have to take it personally, that it's just like this uh, weather front that's come in. In comparison to yesterday, some people might have some resistance (laughs) to the cold, wet, get into your bones, uh, dark, <laughs> uh, day. And yesterday was very light, uh, warm, you know, sparkling, shining, you know. Can we be interested in both? And so the high energy times, the peak experience times, are similar to how the weather was yesterday. And then low energy can be similar to the shift in the weather. Uh, And what's so amazing is that we can take it so personally that we don't see it as impersonal conditions that appear and disappear. If there is identification with the boredom, this means that we'll refer the experience back to being mine, or I, or me, and there'll be a tendency to want a quick fix, to want a quick result. Uh, and this is where we have to look at motivation. Because if there's attachment, uh, I want uh, I want more energy, which is a cultural <laughs> phenomenon. You know, we tend to like energy. We want more and more of it. Or the aversion to the low energy. I don't like dullness. I don't want boredom. Uh, if the motivation to make some kind of intervention in the practice comes out of aversion or attachment. We're just reinforcing identification and suffering, aversion and attachment. Uh, But if we have the sense that, oh yeah, understanding dukkha. You know, we never know what's going to happen. We can go from high energy to boredom fairly quickly. It's unpredictable. Uh, and if we can have a sense that even this experience of boredom uh, in this unreliable world of change is, is enough, is enough, is worthy to be mindful of, um, we can we can learn to be liberated through that experience. I'm amazed when that happens because the boredom will come and go by itself. Sometimes it might mean that we walk faster. Sometimes it might mean that we go to hearing or go back to the breath. What we do isn't as important as what's motivating what we do. The good question to always ask ourselves is how we relate to the experience when it passes. Is it, oh... (laughs) Thank God, <laughs> boredom is over. You know, I hope that doesn't come back again. You know, that's a kind of a clue <laughs> that maybe we were reinforcing aversion rather than freedom. If we had a sense, wow, I learned to work a little bit more with boredom. I'm kind of glad <laughs> it's over, but uh, maybe next time I'll resist it less. Now, that's a sense that the mindfulness was there. And we're not afraid of it. Because we had the strength to face it, there was courage. Courage reinforces courage. Now, the energy to face what's happening brings more energy. The fear reinforces the fear. So I'd like to say, beware of quick fixes. It's important to, to understand that this isn't what the practice is about. We're just trying to see clearly. Uh, and it's very hard for us to keep the practice that simple. You know, we make things very complicated. We try to figure out why is the boredom here? You know, what did I do wrong? You know, Or why is the restlessness here? The Buddha said, when the mind is restless, he or she knows that the mind is restless. (laughs) You know, that's, that's simple. When the mind is restless, he or she knows that the mind is restless. We're not expected to do any more than that. There's no need to try to figure out why the restlessness happened or to do anything with it. There's no need to feel like a failure or to be greedy for something else or to be angry for it appearing. All we need to do is be <laughs> aware of restlessness. Uh, so the Buddha saw that that is swimming upstream because it's really having the courage to be honest. You know this practice just makes honest beings out of us. You know that when the restlessness comes there's usually that sense, I'm not restless. You know it's it's just that that power of self-deception because we've identified with the experience and we think that we'd be much happier if the restlessness hadn't appeared. Rather than seeing that it's the resistance is why we're unhappy. So this power that the Buddha gave us to be honest and not to deceive ourselves comes from the mindfulness that gives us the strength and the courage to face what's happening. And really, that's all we can do. So if we can just be aware of restlessness, there's no need to beat ourselves up. It's just restlessness. I had an experience um, early this year that amazed me at the power of my own (coughs) self-deception. It was just before I went to teach in Burma, I had uh, my usual, I think I think when I go to Asia, it's when I have the most things on my list, you know, to do. Because there's that sense that, oh, I can't get this, or I can't get that, I can't get, th- you know, you can't count on getting what you might want. So there's more of a sense of really having to have everything <laughs> that you, that you, d- you really think you need, um. And so I had this great, amazing list of things to do, and not enough time. Um, and I'll, I had all these phone calls to make. Because also there's that sense of being out of phone contact. So one finishes up business uh, in a way that I don't do when I'm, when I'm anywhere else. Uh, so I had this um, list of phone calls. And then I had this conflict because I wanted to um, make dinner because I was really hungry. Um, so there, <laughs> there was this conflict or struggle between uh, feeding me- myself and making the phone calls. Uh, so in my household, uh, Steve and uh, about a 19-year-old um, young man who lives with us uh, decided to go out to surf. So for me, it was kind of like that feeling of, oh, good, I'll have a little bit longer to do what I need to do, and then I'll make dinner later. Uh, But I was hungry. (laughs) So I decided, well, I'll grab some crackers and then I'll do the phone calls. But I really started already. Already I was lost in doing two or three things at once. So I went into the kitchen and I opened the cabinet. And we tend to be away from home a lot and I don't always clean out the cabinets. Um, So I pulled down this package of rice cakes, which I knew was maybe four months old. Five months old. Uh, and they were all, you know, tied up in cellophane. And so uh, I ran into the, the room with a phone and I opened them up. And <laughs> literally, as I was dialing the phone, I was stuffing a rice cake into my <laughs> mouth, you know, s- <laughs> hoping that the person wouldn't answer right away so I could swallow <laughs> before they answered. And so I stuffed one bite in and I was dialing. And I had this amazing reaction in my mouth um, and throat and just a little detail I'm allergic to a lot of things but I've never been allergic to food so I'm allergic to bees if I get stung I can die so I have a bee sting kit um, but I've never had trouble with food uh, so there was this incredible you know my throat started closing and my throat was itchy and it, it was like you know my mind just could not believe this could happen with a rice cake. I mean, they're all air, right? What could possibly... You know, I don't even like to eat them because there's nothing there. You know, it was just a, a filler. So um, I completely disregarded this very strong evidence <laughs> that something was wrong. My throat was closing. You know, so I um, <laughs> was listening to the ring, and I... I grabbed another bite and I swallowed again. I mean, it was incredible. And my throat just, I mean, I was feeling like something's really wrong. (coughs) But I just started talking. And I just happened to glance at this bookshelf that was in uh, this room. Uh, And it was called Dying at Home. (laughs) 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 And I thought, you know, I better pay attention to this. you know. <laughs> the person answered, and I was like, <laughs> I have to call you later. I, and it was an incredible reaction. And I decided, well, I'll lay down, which is the totally wrong thing to do when your throat is closing. So I laid down, and it was just really bad. you know. So I had to get the bee sting <laughs> out know, and give myself the shot, um, which I don't ever like to do. Uh, and I left Steve a little note saying, you know, Gotta, gotta run to the doctor, see you later. (laughs) Uh, It just so happened, what? Yeah. (laughs) Steve's reminding me to tell you that the rice cake had mold on Mm -hmm. it. It it just had this unusual mold and I am allergic to penicillin. Uh, But I I still am amazed at how much I didn't want to pay attention to that, the, the physical sensations. You know, and how much do we do this? You know, how much do we have whatever it is, aversion come up and it's like, I'm not angry. It's okay. And we try to be with the breath. Maybe somebody sneezes and we're trying to be with the breath, and it's like, I don't care if they sneeze, you know. <laughs> and we're furious, you know, but we're just pretending that we're there's nothing bothering us, you know. <laughs> the one thing that I think happens the most on a retreat is that we start shifting out of fake equanimity. You know, we stopped, you know, if you sit in here long enough, you're going to stop pretending that it's okay. (laughs) That's facing dukkha. One of the things that Upandita really tried to pound into my head was that Vipassana uh, is developing an awareness that's ready for anything to happen. And it's not about getting anything. It's just about having that soft readiness that can be ready for whatever, wonderful, pleasant, very difficult, neutral, uh, and to not take it personally, to just let it life come and go by itself. So the truth is, is that we we never really know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, and it, the wonderful thing about that rice cake was that I just kept feeling like I didn't have time for it. You know, it was like I don't have time to die. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I don't have time to pay attention to this. You know, and it, this is what we do. We go through life. I don't have time to pay attention to the truth. You know, I'm too busy for that. One of the places that I feel I really learned a lot about a mind that's ready for anything is noticing the ups and downs of energy. And to see that as much as I tried to control, I couldn't control that. I could do the best I could and put in my time. But then I had to see that mindfulness, energy, concentration, equanimity, when they came together, it was a kind of peak experience. And I kept thinking that should be happening all the time. And I suffered so much and kept thinking there was something so wrong with me for not being able to maintain it. So it is a long day of practice. And why would we just not encourage you to just take care of the peak experiences and then forget it for the rest of the day? You know, why in a day of Vipassana is it getting up early, and going through the ups and downs. You know, there is some reason behind this. You know, it is all about brushing the hair, eating, having an experience of loving-kindness, going through sleepiness, restlessness, boredom. It's about learning how to be mindful of life, of human life, just as it is. That's the freedom. The freedom isn't just getting attached to the peak experience. Uh, so ultimately, what we're doing is purifying motivation and purifying motivation over and over again. It's looking at that uh, desire to control and manipulate experience versus let it be. So we come to really understand ourselves deeply, and the understanding comes from understanding frustration as well as understanding. Peace. It comes from understanding pride. You know, it tr- comes from understanding eating. It, uh, it comes from understanding every posture, every step. I was, uh, Steve and I had taught in some mountains up above 9,000 feet in northern New Mexico this summer. And I was only home for about 10 days um, in summer in Honolulu before we went up into the mountains. Uh, so the weather was uh, quite a change from sea level in Honolulu. Uh, they had had record rains this um, summer. So when we got up there, the mud w- had already starting to get quite deep. Uh, but then it kept raining the first few days that we were there. Uh, I was doing the late night sitting one night, and it was so rainy. It was so dark, so rainy, so cold, that hardly anyone showed up for the late night sitting. I mean, there were like three people in the hall, and I was sitting there, and it it had like a roof that it was just pouring. You could hear it pouring and pouring. And I kept picturing the mud just deepening and deepening and deepening. Uh, And my cabin was very far uh, from the hall, uh, so... (laughs) The few of us <laughs> who dared, who had the courage to show up for the late night sitting, were all kind of scrambling around because there's no electricity there. Uh, so the darkness uh, really gets intense. You know, it's, it's just, we don't really get darkness until we're out of electricity. Uh, and I had this measly little flashlight, uh, and I just, I didn't want to f- depend on that. I had this funny feeling about this little flashlight and this long trip through this dark, muddy, deep mud. And uh, and it gets very slippery there. So halfway up the hill, back to the cabin, I just started slipping, and I fell, and my flashlight went out. And (laughs) all I could think about was that I wanted to go home. (laughs) And it wasn't just a little mild, I want to go home, it was like why did I come here? You know, it's like, what is this? You know, it's just muck, dark, uh, disgusting, you know, unpleasant, uh, dreariness in the summer. You know, so it was just, finally I shook the flashlight. But I had that feeling of that unbearability of the vulnerability. It was just, just that darkness and just that mud. Uh, that's Dukkha. <laughs> You know, and if we didn't have this building, and if we didn't have the electricity, just think what it would be like to be sitting out there tonight. You know, and this isn't even November. You know, this is October, early October. <laughs> uh, we tend to cushion ourselves from the truth of how it really is. The next night, um, that afternoon. The skies had cleared, and the, 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 the road really didn't dry up that much, but it was much better. Uh, and th- there was a sense that you know most people came to the sitting that night. Uh, and I left the hall, uh, and I saw a meteor shower. And then I had the exact opposite reaction. Instead of wanting to go home, I kept thinking, oh, I want to stay, and I planned the next year when we would teach there, and then the next year. Uh, the mind is so fickle. You know, just, I don't know, some of you, maybe you really enjoyed today, you know, the weather. You know, maybe, (laughs) maybe you like this kind of weather. Um. (laughs) You know, and you had no reaction to it. Uh, But I think that the outer weather is so much like our inner shifts. The low energy, high energy, and how fickle we are. Just from this change that we can't control. so the the strength um, or courage that can come in the face of this range of change, just like we've had in the two days or those two nights I'm describing, comes from the mindfulness. It's that courage to face whatever it is that's happening. And to be honest, to be honest of the reaction to the, to be honest about the reaction if there's one, and to see that it's not personal. I've been reading a book, probably for about the last five or six months, called Epitaph for a Peach, and it's about um, a third-generation Japanese-American farmer. Uh, He has a peach orchard that has very juicy peaches that his, um, I guess it was his great-grandparents planted this orchard. And nowadays, it's very hard for him to find a market for his peaches because uh, most grocery stores don't want juicy peaches because they go um, rotten too quickly. Uh, So here are these incredible juicy peaches that um, he almost lost his farm. So he wrote a book about um, what it was like to farm this orchard. Uh, And most of the book is really about um, him uh, shifting from chemical... Uh, control to organic. Uh, So it's about uh, letting go of control, this book, really. So I'd like to read a few uh, bits from it. Chaos defines my farm. I allow natural grasses to go wild. I see new six-legged creatures migrating into my fields, which now look like green pastures. I watch with paranoid panic wanting to believe all will be fine, while terrified I may lose the crop and even the farm. I need a lesson in managing chaos. This year I've abandoned my my old farm work schedules, which were often set by the calendar. I devote more hours to monitoring my fields, and I curb my impulse to find quick fixes. Not only can I identify the pests that are munching on my fruits, I also recognize when they don't seem to be doing any more damage than usual. I'm learning to live with them, realizing that I've probably always had these pests, but never scrutinized the farm so closely. I monitor the weeds as they creep up to new heights and discover some I have never seen before. Each day I accumulate impressions more than lessons. I used to farm with a strategy of unchaos. I was looking for regularity, less variability. But now my farm resembles wildness, and the wildness is tolerated, even promoted. The farm becomes a test of the unconventional, a continuous experiment, a journey of adaptation and living with change. I try to rely less and less on controlling nature. instead I am learning to live with its chaos. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean how many times do we come into retreat and realize how much thinking is going on? You know And there can be that paranoid panic, you know, do we allow it? Um, You know, and it's that, again, uh, there's that sense of motivation. Are we trying to get rid of anything, or are we trying to learn how to live with it, with freedom? Living with change, living with chaos. So one way that we could look at dukkha is um, living with chaos, living with unpredictability. And probably, This farmer realized he'd always had pests but he just never saw them. He never took the time to look at them closely. It's like the hindrances. You know, have we ever taken the time to look at them closely? Uh, So this is what the Buddha taught. He taught, take a look at aversion and attachment and see and try to understand how we suffer. That's the only way we get liberated, is to have the courage to face the aversion, to face the attachment. And there are deep roots to the attachment and aversion. So if we do this, we start to see that we can let the breath come and go by itself. That's the managing of the chaos. We let the sounds come and go by themselves. If we have the courage to do that, we can start to let the pain and pleasure come and go by themselves in the body. And then we can let thoughts, emotions, hindrances come and go by themselves. And there's this deep peace that isn't based on experience. It's on how we relate to experience, and so that's the freedom. What is it that prevents us from listening to the courageous parts of ourselves? I'd like to talk about two things that I think um, prevents us from listening to the courageous parts of ourselves. And one is fear, and one is the comparing mind. The first long retreat that I, re- uh, that I did was in England. Uh, and maybe... I think it was about halfway through the retreat, uh, my body became covered with eczema. It's like this incredible physical <laughs> <laughs> manifestation of dukkha appeared. Uh, and I had so much shame about it, like it was so visible. And then uh, the teacher of the retreat finally had to take me to the doctor, which was very far away from um, the retreat place. Uh, So not only was I embarrassed and ashamed at this ugly, disgusting eczema, uh, but then I felt like I was really putting this teacher way out of his way uh, to take me to the doctor. (laughs) Uh, And there was a kind of um, discomfort an aversion to what had happened. That it took me, when I got back to the retreat and uh, spent the next few days kind of recovering uh, from that happening, I really started to see that that had been one of the best teachings I'd ever had in a retreat. So I fought it. I had so much resistance to that happening. And yet, um, it's like something always happens. You know, it might not be eczema, you know, but on my last retreat I did, I kind of twisted my ankle, just, (laughs) it was just this little bit, but it was just another example of something always seems to get in the way of a happy retreat, right? You know, it might not be an ankle or eczema, but it might be, you know, a roommate, or it might be something with the food, or something in the hall, or it just, it never stops. You know, it might be a pain in the back of the head. Uh, (laughs) I remember this uh, friend of mine in my early years of practice where he was convinced that he would get enlightened when he finally got rid of this pain in his head. You know, and he spent years waiting and waiting and waiting for this pain in his head to go away. And I was sort of new in those early years and I kept thinking, you know, Gosh, you know, I don't think the pain in his head's gonna go away. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that to me. But I was afraid to say, you know, maybe you should try accepting the pain in your head. Uh, you know, but it, it just—it it was just there was some resistance he had. He couldn't go through it. You know, and sometimes from the outside it seems so clear to us with somebody else. You know, it's like, you know, they all they have to do is keep sitting through that sneezing and they're going to be liberated. You know, that's just the thing they need. You know, maybe they're sitting somebody... You know, maybe we're afraid of illness, and we're sitting next to somebody who's coughing. And, you know, you can just sort of feel that tightness, like... Well, I didn't get it yet, but... You know, you can feel it start spreading through the hall. You know, and it's (laughs) like... It's like roulette. You're wondering if you're going to be next, you know. (laughs) And I always sit here thinking... Well, you know, I might be the next one coughing and snorting and sneezing. You know, it's like there has to be that sense of can we work with the aversion or the fear? And sometimes I feel like it's the best thing that happens if I get it early. You know, because then I get it over with. (laughs) You know, it's that feeling of the resistance is so much more painful than the actual cold. It's just the cold. It'll come and go by itself. So there is always something, uh, and is there something that prevents us from having the courage to really face it just as it is, with that recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification. The other, other, I think, obstacle that uh, prevents us from finding the courage within us is comparing our practice with others. And it seems that that's a kind of theme lately in my meetings with people is is just hearing. You You can't believe it. I mean, most of the people I am listening to, it's usually during the question and answers in the morning. It's like we might hear, you know, some question and it's like, oh, you know, I wish I didn't hear that one. You know, because then we'll start thinking, oh, my practice is so... It's just never going to be like that. You know, we'll start, and then we might see somebody who's practicing a certain way. Maybe it's not a question in the hall, maybe we just walk by somebody who it looks like they're really being mindful. You know, and then that comparing comes up and we feel we lose it. We think we're no good, that we're never going to get it. And if we look closely, it's very important to see that, of course, it's just comparing. And we can see it as just thoughts, but it's often this fear of not we're not gonna get enough. You know, we're not if we don't walk like that or if we don't have that experience like that question in the hall, that we're not we're not gonna get it. So it's either the wanting or the fear of not getting it. And it, it forces us to find these reserves of courage and trust in our own practice. One of the things that I'm the most grateful for with Sayadaw Upandita in the years of, of sitting with him um, was that I felt that he forced me to find that within myself. You know, that he he had a way of making me see um, and respect my own practice. You know, that... that um, by a certain way of uh, not acknowledging um, basically much of anything. <laughs> you know, just kind of... Uh <laughs> just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just being a mirror. I, I think of it like these beautiful puddles that appear when it's raining, and, and when it's very still, uh, there's just that pure mirroring uh, and then if there's just that little it's like the skin of the 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 puddle. There'll be a little vibration of wind and, and you can see that reflected, just that whiff of a little air because the, the the surface of the water is so still. Uh that's what it felt like uh with Upandita for me is that if there was any wanting of any kind of acknowledgement, it just it just wouldn't happen. And I was forced upon finding that acknowledgement within myself. Uh, and I would wish that for all of you you know because no one can give that to you. you know you can get the acknowledgement or not but really you'll come to see for yourself you know what works for you and what doesn't and to have that sense of really being able to trust that because the what works for us means that <laughs> the practice you'll find um, that you're finding, that there's mindfulness, that there's ways of becoming more happy and peaceful with what is. I read recently that John Muir, uh, the great naturalist, um, tied himself to a tree during an intense thunderstorm so he could uh, really understand a thunderstorm, you know. He wanted to experience it so directly that he knew he would probably run away. You know, so he tied himself to a tree. Now, I'm not recommending this um, literally in terms of our practice, uh, uh, but I would really encourage you to get to know and get to taste each moment. You know, it's like let yourself be touched by the universe with every experience, and so that we deeply understand all experience. Each moment is worthy of our attention. And all it takes is that courage, you know, and strength uh, to face what is. So I'd like to end with a poem called A Log. And it's a poem by Joseph Bruchak. And he wrote it in the memory of the poet William Stafford. There is a log, quiet in the woods, life on it, within it, all around it. But we step over it on our way elsewhere. We don't even think about being that log. We want to be bright lights, stars in the sky, another sun, or at least an eagle, flying, not at rest. Instead of that log, we try to pull ourselves, sheer force of will, into the sky. We need it, of course, that log. Let's sit for a minute. May we have the courage to beware of quick fixes.